The second reading tonight is from Second Thessalonians, and we're reading uh, from chapter 3. We're going to start at verse 6 and read through to the end of verse 11. It's on page 1,242 in the Pew Bibles. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to, how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. This is the word of the Lord. So what gets you up in the morning? Does your alarm go off? You groan, turn over, press snooze, and wish the day hadn't started? Just five more minutes. You have to get up and endure another week in the rat race. You wonder, what does it all mean? Or maybe you're one of those annoyingly optimistic people. As soon as the alarm go off, you bounce out of the bed with a Superman cape, eager, eager to get to work as fast as you can. In fact, the previous night you were disappointed you even had to leave. What gets you up in the morning? Do you love your work? Do you love going? Do you look forward to going to work? Should you love your work? How are we to view work? Well, that's what we're looking at tonight. We're considering the ethics of work. How should we view it? How should we do it? So how should we view work? Mark Twain once said that work is a necessary evil to be avoided. You might know people who believe this or even act like it. But this isn't the Bible's view of work. The Bible's perspective on work may in fact surprise you. The Bible's very positive about work, and it gives us motivations to work far beyond anything that our world can offer. So let's start, and the first place to consider work is grounded in the character of God. God is a worker. In Genesis chapter 2, which is found near the front of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God made the world by working. He sustains the world. He upholds it. He works all the time. Work is not a necessary evil because even God works. From God's character, we learn that work is good. And then further on in Genesis chapter 2, in Genesis 2.15, we see that humans were created to work the created order. 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, and take care of it. 
God made people with a unique role. We are created to work. We aren't made to sleep 20 hours a day like lions. In fact, no other creature was created or made to work. God made work a part of the structure, the pattern of his creation. Consider Psalm 104. You don't have to look it up straight away, but you can look it up if you like. This is a a creation psalm speaking about God's wisdom in creating the world. It details his creation order where everything has its proper order and place. The earth, the sky, the sea, the day, the night, everything is ordered and structured. And in Psalm 104, verse 23, in this order and structure and pattern of the world, it says, Then man goes out to his work, to his labor until evening. We are created to work God's creation. It's part of God's structure of the world. After I left high school, I went to university, and one of my good friends at school decided to take some time off. I mean, after all, he'd been at school 13 years, and he needed a break and had to have a rest. So that's what he did. He took a break, and he rested. And how did he fill in his time? He played computer games. Man, I was jealous. I mean, I went to university. Here I was attending lectures, tutorials, studying, working, getting stressed, and my friend was getting a high score on Doom. If you don't know what Doom was, then you can have a look on Google it later or something. But Doom was the big game at the time. He played computer games all the time, and man, I was jealous. Six months later, when I was on mid-year uni holidays, I saw my friend again. He was bored out of his brains. He was sick and tired of playing computer games. Recreation is good, but we're created to work. This is what makes unemployment so hard. It's the way God has made the world. So this leads to my next point, that through work, we maintain and build a caring society. For those of you who are working here, and, and studying is a form of work as well, how would you answer the question, what is my work for? What is the purpose of my work? You might, or you might not, remember the film Pretty Woman with Richard Gere and Julia Roberts. Richard Gere's character, Edward Lewis, was a rich, ruthless businessman who bought businesses and sold them off piece by piece. He makes a statement in the movie which gets to the very heart of work. He says to his colleague, exasperated, We don't make anything, Phil. We don't make anything. And Phil's response was, We make money, Edward. Is this how we view our work? As a selfish, greedy quest to, for money without any benefit to the wider society? The Jesus-shaped community helps us see that our work is an expression of our love for our neighbor. Our work directly affects the order and harmony of the wider community. Our work is to maintain and build society. Everyone's work affects and benefits everyone else. Consider the iPhone, perhaps. It's someone's work in developing, manufacturing, and marketing this product enables us to make calls, check emails, update Facebook, play Plants vs. Zombies, and share photos of our dinner. A crucial purpose of our work is to care for others. 
I stumbled across an article from the New York Times this week. The author, Tony Schwartz, compared time spending with managers of two large global companies. One encounter he described as a pure downer, dull, rote, and devoid of any positive energy. Yet an eight-hour meeting with a group of Google executives was inspiring. Why the difference? He writes this. He says, The Googlers feel they're contributing to something meaningful and larger than themselves, and the other executives evinced no passion whatsoever for their work. Purpose. Having a sense of purpose is the difference. But listen to how Tony Schwartz described this purpose, and it's very interesting. He says this, The most reliable source of purpose, I'm convinced, is being of service to others, giving more than you take, which turns out not to just make most of us feel good, but also good about ourselves. In short, it's a powerful source of energy. If you're a teacher, a social worker, or a nurse, your work is intrinsically of service to others. But there are many ways of being of service. Over the years, I've been inspired by parking lot attenders, shoe shiners, elevator operators, TSA agents, whatever they are, and a smiling, upbeat clerk working in a department of motor vehicles. They'd found a way, whatever the intrinsic limitations of their jobs, to add value in the world and to make meaning one person at a time. As Marianne Wright Edelman once put it, we must not, in trying to think about how we can make a big difference, ignore the small daily differences we can make, which over time add up to the big differences that no one could possibly foresee. Schwartz says the most reliable source of purpose is being of service to others. Love your neighbor. Building a loving, caring community. Consider your own job. How does your work facilitate a society where people care for one another? I used to work for in insurance. Um, I used to work for Shannon's Insurance, insuring classic vintage and prestige cars. And so what did insurance work mean? What was my purpose of my work? Some might think it's overcharging and under-delivering. But at its heart, my work helped provide peace of mind for those for people who love their cars. I helped people avoid unnecessary financial distress or difficulty in the event of a theft or an accident. It's a way of caring, loving my neighbor. And thinking about work this way helps us actually to evaluate our work as well. It helps shape an ethic of work. Is work good? Work is good if it contributes to a community of care. So this means working for a casino, perhaps, is probably not good work. Certainly casinos offer recreation, but they also take away from the poor to give to the rich. It doesn't build a community of care. Work is good, and we're created to work God's creation and to contribute to the care of our community. And this view of work is reinforced by the commands that we found concerning work we find through the Scriptures. And the clearest passage of this is the one that, one that we had read to us just now in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-11. Paul commands two important reasons why we should work. First is to avoid idleness. See there in particular in verse 6 where he says, if you've got it open there, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, keep away from every brother who is idle. Idleness is not appropriate in a loving community. 
And Paul wants to distance the, Thess- the Thessalonians to distance them themselves from idle busybodies. When someone's idle, they get up to mischief. They have time on their hands. They talk about people behind their backs. I'm not sure if you've ever seen the old BBC TV show, Keeping Up Appearances. It's like Hyacinth Bouquet, always sticking your nose into other people's businesses. A loving people won't work well when there are other people speaking behind others' backs. What should they do? Work and occupy their time profitably. Neither will a community be uh, work well when people are being parasitic. Hence, Paul's second command, not to be dependent on anyone unnecessarily. Verse 10, if someone doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Now, I'm sure that we've all known people who have abused the generosity of others, you know, the backpacker who comes for one night and stays for three months. But Paul says that the people should not be unnecessary burden on others. Instead, they should work. Our work directly affects the order and harmony of the wider community. That's why, where possible, we should work. And work also features in the new future envisaged by the Scriptures. Given that work is part of the structure of the way God has made the world, I think that we'll actually work in heaven. Now, this may seem a little bit odd, uh, given that heaven is described as rest, But given that work is about loving our neighbor, it's part of God's structure of the world, and the heaven will be a physical place, I think there will be heavenly work. But the future also indicates another type of work, another form of work. And this work is described in the book of John, John chapter 6, which is the work of God, believing in the one in whom he has sent. This is gospel work, the work of reconciliation between people and God. And this type of work is different to what I've outlined so far, the work of creation and the work of community. It's a spiritual work. And it's a work that all Christian believers are engaged in. We're all engaged in gospel work. Some are paid for it. I have a friend, Matt, who works in IT. Uh, He works for Sonic. I'm not sure if anyone owns a Sonic product. They're sold in JB Hi-Fi. They're usually relatively inexpensive or some would describe as cheap. Uh, imports. Uh, you can get DVD players for just 20 bucks. Uh, I think they work, but um, maybe, maybe you have one. I'm sorry if you, to insult you if you do. Um, but he works for this company. And, and he, so Sonic, essentially what they do is to help build our community through recreation and entertainment. But he's also involved in this spiritual work of reconciliation. He regularly holds discussions in his workplace uh, about Jesus. And he often has about 15 people or so in his, in his, in his lunchroom of whom about nine or ten aren't believers, investigating the claims of Jesus. And this is the the very type of work that I try to encourage with the City Bible Forum, try to aim to stimulate conversations about this type of work in the city, in in offices all around the, the city, helping Christians engage this spiritual work of God. And the fruit of this type of work in particular is ultimately seen in the future, in the And that's what we've looked at here. So what have we covered? Work is good. And the primary purposes of of work are to tend creation and to care for those around us. Work is about building a loving, caring community. We'll even work in heaven. yet Yet our work in heaven will have one crucial 
difference. There'll be one difference between our work in heaven compared to our work now. Our work will be without toil. Which brings me to my next point, that the good purposes of God in work are frustrated by sin. Our experience of work now is frustration. We'll do a quick quiz. Who has never, ever been frustrated by work? Okay, the frustration of work comes from the curse of Genesis in chapter 3. Work is frustrating. And I think that the curse of Genesis, uh, Genesis 3, 17 to 19, for those of you who are taking notes, and also in Ecclesiastes 2, 23, the passage that we had before, again, displays this frustration of work. And I think, slightly controversially, but the curse of Genesis is displayed most clearly in our world in the IT department and the help desk. You don't believe me? Okay. Has hand up anyone who has never had a problem with a computer? I rest my case. Work is frustrating. We work all day, the server fails, and we lose a whole day's work. In fact, the worst day of my working life was after I had a problem with my computer. The help desk took my computer. Sorry, I don't need to insult anyone who works on the help desk. You do a great job. But they took my computer, rebuilt it, and uh, rebuilt the computer, which meant wiping the hard drive, and with it, three weeks' worth of budget work that I was working on. Thank God that there won't be any help desks in heaven. Work is frustrating. Work is toil. Even great footballers and athletes toil. Famous singers get sick of singing the same songs over and over again. Sometimes Madonna once said that she wasn't sure that she could sing Holiday or Like a Virgin ever again unless someone paid her $30 million. Separation from God has made work meant frustration and toil for our work. And work can also seem meaningless. Consider the passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 that we had read before. You can open it up now if you like. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'll spend a little bit of time looking at that now. Ecclesiastes 2. Work is meaningless if we only focus on achievements because great achievements are fleeting. Consider the teacher here, or the, um, the teacher of Ecclesiastes, in his first 11 verses, he talks about he's worked at many things. He's made great projects, reservoirs, farming, gardens, parks. He's been a civil engineer, a farmer, an entrepreneur, entrepreneur a businessman, a gardener, all at the same time. He's achieved a lot, and yet he describes his achievements as fleeting, as a chasing after the wind like sand running through your fingers. Michael Jordan was the greatest basketball player of all time. And Jordan's legacy on the basketball court is unmatched. With six NBA titles, five MVPs, 10 scoring titles, 14 all-star appearances, he was the greatest. And he finished playing about 10 years ago. Jordan's achievements are amazing. Yet now he's struggling to adjust as the world moves on without him. His life was focused on achieving. And now he stopped achieving. What is there? There's a story about returning Roman generals who rode in victory parades through the streets of the capital. And a slave stood behind them whispering, all glory is fleeting. All glory is fleeting. This is what Michael Jordan is experiencing. His great achievements are all now in the past. 
the pinnacle of his, of his career was walking off that basketball court that very last time. After he strayed off the court, the next season began without him. And then the next. And now there are other players achieving great things. His fame is fading, and I bet there's a, some of us out there who have probably never even heard of Michael Jordan. A household name 20 years ago is becoming a record etched onto the Hall of Fame trophy. Great achievements are fleeting. Achievements are satisfying and, and can be enjoyable, but this isn't the primary focus of our work. If we do consider this to be the primary focus of our work, then we'll find it ultimately empty and meaningless, as Michael Jordan is experiencing. And this is exactly the same is exactly true of three other key motivations commonly given to work. Reputation, consumption, and fulfillment. The teacher of Ecclesiastes shows that these, like achievements, are fleeting and ultimately meaningless. Look there in verse 9. He made a reputation. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. He consumed. Look there in verse 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. He was fulfilled. Verse 10 again. My heart took delight in all my work. Sounds like the ideal job, doesn't it? Fulfilling work which enables me to do whatever I like and everyone respects me. Yet having all this, look how he concludes there in verse 11. Everything was meaningless, chasing after the wind. Achievements, reputations, fulfillment and consumption are all fleeting. Here today, gone tomorrow, like sand running through our fingers. This isn't what work is for. The experience of Michael Jordan and Madonna illustrate this. Work can be meaningless and frustrating, and any account of Christian ethics at work must consider the inherent frustrations in it. Yet our purposes of work go far beyond achievements, fulfillment, reputation, or consumption. As I said before, work is good, and we are created to work God's creation and to contribute to the care of our community. So how will this affect me my workplace tomorrow morning. When we enter our workplaces tomorrow, the most crucial question that we must answer is, who am I? Who are you? Our identity is so often tied up in our work. When you, you go to a party or a function and you meet someone new, what's generally the first question that you ask? So what do you do? We are defined by what we do. But work can't define us. Our identity, our status, our self-esteem and significance can't be tied up with our work. Our identity is found as a child of God. Consider Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. I'll spend a little bit of time in that now if you want to flip there. Colossians chapter 3, verse, uh, verses 3. It says, our, our identity, we are united with Christ. So then we have been raised with Christ. Our identity is captured in Christ, no longer ourselves, our performance, our achievements, but in Christ. In verse 3, it says, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Our identity 
meaning, value, and significance is found in Christ. Work in the world defines who you are. Michael Jordan claimed that his self-esteem has always been, as he says, tied directly to the game. Without it, he felt adrift. Who am I? What am I doing? For the past 10 years since finally retiring, he's been running, moving as fast as he could, creating distractions, distance, trying to find an identity away from basketball. Jordan stares in the mirror, wondering where to turn. How can I enjoy, enjoy the next 20 years without this so much consuming me? He ponders, how can I find peace away from the game of basketball? His self-esteem was tied with his work. His work ended, and now he's not sure who he is. Is he anyone? Our identity is found in Christ. Christ is our life. Christ has laid down his life for us, which means regardless of how successful we are or aren't, we still have identity, value, meaning, and significance. So when you go to work tomorrow, see yourself primarily as a child of God, redeemed by God, before you see yourself in your vocation. And seeing yourself in this way will dramatically affect the way you act at work. If you primarily see yourself in Christ, then you'll live like Christ, exactly as the passage in Colossians goes on to say. If you see yourself primarily, say, as a lawyer, then, well, how would you live? Well, like a lawyer. Some would say opportunistic, overcharging, haughty, arrogant. Apologies to the lawyers out there. I'm sure that you're, you're not that. Or as a Christian. How does a Christian lawyer live? Look to the rest of Colossians chapter 3. It says like, it's like putting on new clothes, putting off the old sinful nature and putting on Christ. Our new identity in Christ affects our speech, our sex lives, our integrity, our attitudes to money, our attitudes to others. We display Christ to the world through our conduct, not through our rank or role. The way we act in Christ then has two important implications, I think, for how we engage ethically in the workplace and how we view the best job or the best job description. I'll just touch on those very briefly before we finish up. When we engage others in the workplace, the first thing to remember is that our identity is in Christ. This is the bedrock which gives us the strength to engage. Then there are four strategies for engaging others in the workplace. The default and probably the first strategy is cooperation. Romans 12 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. This should be our standard method of engaging, of engaging in the workplace. We should live at peace with our colleagues. But what if the practices in my workplace are not, confused, not building a community of care? Well, there's a couple of other ways we can engage, and one is through subversion. But this is not subversion through violence. This is subversion through love. We can subvert the culture. And this is by living a light that is so different and so attractive in this dark world that those opposed to the message give glory to God. So, for example, say our workplace is anti-relational. No one ever talks to anyone. No one ever socializes. No one ever goes out for lunch. Why not subvert it through love? 
bring a birthday cake, buy some donuts, take them out for lunch. Even if it's not what the current culture is like, you can subvert the culture through love. Well, the next strategy is exposure. Sometimes it's appropriate to highlight and expose evil and wickedness. It could mean exposing fraud or embezzlement or tax evasion. It'll be hard and there'll be opposition, but remember, our identity is found in Christ, not in our work or what others think of it. And the fourth option is ultimately separation. There are times when it is appropriate to leave. If a workplace is so toxic, so bad, that the only option for us is to leave. And that's exactly what happened to Greg Lake, the guy we have speaking in our upcoming City Bible Forum series on Wednesday about asylum seekers. He left the Department of Immigration and Citizenship when he could no longer reconcile his Christian faith with what he was required to do in his role in the department. So in engaging ethically in the workplace, we can cooperate, subvert, expose, or sometimes separate. Each is appropriate in different circumstances. And the second main implication that our identity is, is in Christ is that in some ways, the job we perform is irrelevant. This means we could put up with boring work because the way that we live is much more important than the job that we do. When choosing the best job, we must remember God's character and his commands. Some job descriptions require ungodliness. For example, prostitution requires living a sexually immoral life. A hitman is murdering people for a living. They're, they're inappropriate. They're, not, they're contrary to God's character and his commands. So after we consider those, God's character and his commands, and remembering that our work contributes to a caring society, really we could do any job. The best job is any job that contributes to a caring society. Some jobs match our gifts and responsibilities better than others, but when we consider the purpose of work, our identity in Christ, we can do anything that contributes to society. As I mentioned before, we, we must not, in trying to think about how we can make a big difference, ignore the small daily differences we can make, which over time add up to big differences we cannot often foresee. This is the Christian ethic of work. So when the alarm goes off tomorrow, how will you get up? How will you view your work? Yes, it can and it will be frustrating. You invariably have to turn a computer on at some point. But if through your work you're seeking achievement, fulfillment, respect, you're chasing the wind. But if you recognize yourself adding to and contributing to a society which cares for one another, you might find your job a bit more meaningful. Work is good. It's part of God's good structure of this world. When you wake up tomorrow morning, look in that mirror. Say to yourself, my identity is in Christ. And whatever I do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen.